0: Kia ora katoa. welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy, with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Tēnā kōtō everyone on the Kaka. This is the Hoon. I am Bernard Hickey.
1: We're here with our co-host Peter Bale. Peter, Bernard, how are you? Are you allowed to say tenakoto Katoa in uh, Sydney, where you are now? Because you know you're the voice. You're the voice of Maori uh, Sydney, as opposed to the uh, you know you've got this extraordinary um, referendum coming up in. Australia. Oh yeah. You know, I mean we like we like to think of this whole First Nation thing in New Zealand as being somewhat different and it most certainly is. How how is it looking there? I mean you've been there for about twenty minutes, i.e. a week. Um, give us your give us your consolidated view of where the, where the referendum is going.
0: Yeah, it started off like it was going to be approved. But of course, the opposition, the Liberal Na- Liberal National Coalition, the Conservatives have jumped in and made it a big deal. And the Murdoch papers are going gangbusters mm-hmm. to stop it. And um, it looks like it might uh, might not get over the line now. Uh, it's, it's quite a thing. There's been a change in Australia right? since I lived here in the early 2000s when there wasn't much you know, notice given to um, Indigenous issues. Anything,
1: anything Indigenous, yeah.
0: No, but what you see now is every public event, uh, the host will acknowledge the elders of the land. And in fact, a couple of events I participated in this week, that was exactly what happened. And Mm -hmm. one of the interesting twists on that introduction uh, lately is the comment that I acknowledge that the owners of the land have not given up sovereignty to it.
1: It's really interesting isn't it funny enough I went to something last night which um recognised the tangata whenua of of Auckland as well and was and was very embracing and I, and I think there are I mean god forbid that there should be examples that, that Australia might follow but this this referendum thing is a very good indication of I guess that's where David our friend David Seymour the Lotus driving um dwarf um you know has has picked this up from and I noticed John Howard you know who just had his eighty fourth birthday pro- probably um enraptured with Rupert Murdoch's you know just so said this this um referendum shall not pass and most mm. Australians disagree with it I just it's a very interesting problem Bernard in Australia where mm. you've got I mean to put something like this up to a referendum and and should we be clear about what the referendum is which is essentially that there should be a kind of um council is it a sort of Executive Council of Aboriginal Representatives to feed in to main, the main Parliament because Aboriginal people are, have such a tiny uh, percentage of um, the population uh, because of various things that we won't go into just yet. That um, you know there has to be some explicit means for them to have a, a say. Yeah, and
0: it's an attempt to get some sort of uh, constitutional involvement for the Tanga Te of of uh, Australia. And uh, it's an attempt. It's nowhere near as comprehensive or as embedded as um, the Treaty of Waitangi. But it's something. And unfortunately, you know, the process of having this debate brings all of this bile to the surface, which yeah. um, you're always going to get. But it is, you know, it's 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 something. Uh, and you see it in sport. There's a lot of acknowledgement of local culture, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh,
1: embracing of uh, Aboriginal athletes and
0: not always brilliant, but
1: it does, does happen. Well, yeah, I was going to say the, the, yeah, there's, a few, there's a couple of Aboriginal athletes who've had some pretty difficult times. But mm. but I, I, I was thinking, you know, when you, you mentioned that you were working in Sydney in the early 2000s, and I have to admit that I was there a little, a little earlier than you in almost the same job. And <laughs> uh, at that time there was talk of a compact you know, it, it, right back in the time of Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, there was the talk mm. of a compact that there needed to be a resolution because it's such an interesting set of problems. And I, and I think, you know, you and I are not necessarily the most qualified people to talk about being um, Pākehā New Zealanders. But, you know, the Treaty of Waitangi is at least a baseline where there was a conversation to be had and a kind of recognition of who was there before. Whereas, you know, Australia is much more, I mean, more difficult because that the recognition of the First Nation people, of the Indigenous people, was never made by the colonialists. No, there's a lot more um,
0: uh, pathway to go. Uh, but it's been a, a, a fun trip, uh, which I, you know, won't be doing too many times. But...
1: I bet you will. <laughs> in, the new, in the new Kaka Learjet,
0: yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I think my carbon footprint needs to be restricted. Um, in particular, uh, because we've got some climate issues. Um, Peter, I wanted to bring in Catherine Dyer now. She's yeah. been um, doing some great work for us this week on uh, some big
1: climate news.
0: Catherine, great to see you again.
2: You too. Hi, Peter. Hi, Bernard. Hi,
1: Catherine. How are you? Now, Good. I think, I think Zoom and headphones and you being in Sydney, me being in Perugia or wherever I am, is, is an excellent way to have a low-carbon way to do the kaka.
0: Exactly. No, no, we should, we should all do this. And um, uh, Catherine, uh, I wanted to uh, talk through some of the, the big uh, news that's happened in climate in the last week or so because it really has been epic. Mm. Um, anyone who's seen those charts showing the, um, uh, not just the rainfall in Auckland but the heat in the Atlantic, uh, the ice loss in the Antarctic, the extraordinary uh, heat we've seen across southern Europe and also parts of the United States and China, to the point where in Sicily this week, one particular town was cut off from its power and its water because its roads melted, which took out the the power and water lines in the road that were embedded under the roads, and clearly something is uh, is going on. What are we hearing from the scientists about this? Uh, these sorts of numbers, which, for example, include in the Antarctic uh, the loss of sea ice being mm. six standard deviations away from from the median. What, what are you hearing?
2: Yeah, it's just incredible um, reports coming in, isn't it? Um, there was a a guy and a climate scientist in Austria who's been um, sort of doing the numbers and trying to estimate what July is going to look like. Obviously, it hasn't finished yet, but he thinks it's going to come out something like between 1.3 and 1.7 degrees Celsius higher as an average for July versus kind of pre-industrial temperatures. Um, So that's definitely starting to get up there.
1: Did I see it's the highest in 120,000 years?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, You know we're setting new records at the moment, and they're also saying because we're at the start of an El Nino period that we're likely to see more records tumbling over the next few months. Yeah, it's hard to talk about how hot it is there when it's so cold here this week (laughs) as well, right? Yeah,
1: Catherine, I was really struck. I'm a big not fan exactly, but I have been waiting for this organisation in the UK to emerge, which has now emerged, the weather attribution. Um, initiative at the which is at uh, Imperial College, uh-huh. and they have said that this uh, you know the current heat wave, I mean the very the the point of them is to do that thing where you say yes, this is related to anthropogenic um, climate change, i.e., human climate change uh, factors, and they've said that this was you know simply essentially that this current heat wave and the various things that have gone on since May are essentially impossible without. Anthropogenic, you know, but also what's other what's clever about them, and and to me it goes quite well to the to the climate skeptics. They said that the floods in northern Italy earlier on were not related to anthropogenic climate change. So it's a very interesting set of. I just feel we now have both the long term data and also these people trying to give us short term data. This there's not much uh, to doubt now.
2: No, I don't. I don't see how anybody can still doubt it at this point. But you know that attribution science is kind of this whole new emerging mm. area, and it, it does get pretty technical. I think, but you know, it's a it's really interesting what they what they can show now that is related to, you know, with whether or not it's anthropogenic. So yeah, hard to argue with.
1: Yeah, and and, and we got the ocean. I mean, I, I I was really you know I think I'm not sure it got enough attention in New Zealand, but. The, and maybe we've talked about this before. In fact, I'm pretty sure we have, Bernard. But you know, the 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 sea temperatures around New Zealand rose, you know, two to three degrees over the last uh, three or four years. Yes, there was a what? Well, actually, that was La Nina, of course. Um, you know, it meant that you can't uh, farm salmon in the Marlborough Sounds anymore. Mm. And then you look at uh, look at Miami and Florida at the moment, and the sea is literally 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and mm. You know, you're talking about some of the most important, cor- I mean, it's just the the idea is just so extraordinary, which, and of course, there's been peaks and troughs, but all the peaks are in the last 45 years. And we've seen, tw-
0: I think, 28 days in a row of brand new records every day. Um, Catherine, I just wanted to j- jump into this area of uh, the day after tomorrow. You mm. wrote a great piece um, this week, uh, which went out to everyone immediately, Um about the AMOC, could you explain to us what the AMOC is and why there's been a paper that's come out in Nature that has got everyone talking again about it?
2: Yeah, so the AMOC is the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation is the is what the uh, acronym stands for, and it's this whole massive system of ocean currents. So it, what happens is you get very cold dense, salty um, water up, up in the northern Atlantic, which sinks because it's um, it's heavy with, with salt in it, and that tends to spread southwards, and then that sort of meets up with um, a whole lot of um, heated, very heated weather from the water from the tropical zones, which rise up and then... Um, Move up towards the northern area, and they sort of join with the Gulf Stream for a bit of time before veering off towards the Atlantic again. So it's just it's the system that overturns warm and cold water and shifts it on the south north longitudinal um, axis. And
0: um, that's what we've seen is this paper that says the long feared or or speculated idea of a collapse of the AMOC. Which is referred to in sensational terms in that movie, The Day After Tomorrow, which yep. has these, you know, computer-generated instant freezing of New York, which of course is just off the charts, not going to happen. But that
1: sense of disruption of these of these phenomena that have kept mm-hmm. us warm and dry, or wet, or moist, you know, I mean, there's a reason. There's a reason why the UK. At its uh, latitude, not to mention longitude, but its latitude, is relatively warm and benign, and seldom has, seldom has uh, snow. There's a reason why uh, Madrid, which I believe is more or less at the same latitude as New York, oh really? You know, has a has a different temperature. Of course, it's a, it's a much more continental place. But these mm. we're talking about very fundamental shifts. And it's what 2055? Mm. I think it was 2055 to 2075. Was this idea of the collapse of the AMOC? Is that right? It's brought forward by about 100 years?
2: Yeah, well, actually, this paper, the most recent paper that's come out, is suggesting that there's a 95% probability of it collapsing sometime between 2025 and 2095, Mm -hmm. with it being most likely in the sort of mid century timing. But there is, of course, you know, a bit of. Dispute about this in the in the scientific community. A lot of talking about it because it's based on a looking at a particular data set and a particular kind of modelling. And there are other things that other scientists know mm. about ocean circulation that might have changed that outcome if they were included. So there's some dispute about just how.
1: Yeah, and you you will have seen the person the person that I saw who's a kind of a noted climate scientist saying. Mm. Gulf Stream is not going to collapse in any way because it's related to a different phenomenon of the rotation of the Earth and so on. But I, I think the the point is, isn't it, that that the we are seeing phenomenal potential disruption yep. of quite fundamental forces. Yeah, uh, that we've that we've relied on to farm and to live and to you know. Yeah, and 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 I think Catherine's kind of done a great job of.
0: Um, Uh, pulling together the competing uh, scientific views on this paper and presenting it in a way which uh, shows that um, the IPCC, which has been quite conservative, is saying Mm. there was, has previously said there's a 10% chance of some sort of collapse Mm. of the AMOC, whereas this paper and the latest uh, research suggests that that percentage likelihood is higher. Rather than it's absolutely yeah. going to happen, which which I thought was a really good way of expressing it, and it's been a very popular piece so far.
2: Yeah, that that um that outcome is also something that, that we're getting used to, where some of the um, predictions mm. or forecasts of the IPCC, we we seem to have a lot more downside risk. Um, so it's more likely that things are worse than what they're saying that, mm. than that they're going to be better than what they say, and so those sort of things piling up is is a bit worrying as well. Catherine, what
1: did you make of… I I, I was um, kind of interested in Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General's comments today, we're reaching boiling point. Mm. I I, I sort of realised today how much I don't really like Antonio Guterres, and I think he's been absolutely useless and probably the worst Secretary General of the UN in my lifetime. Um, because I just think he's a raver and a ranter and does fuck all basically other than possibly the grain deal with Russia but uh, do, do 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 you think I mean I I've been I mean I'm not Antonio Guterres, but I've been accused even of the by the readers of my spin-off column of being a too bleak about um climate change in the last couple of weeks what what do you think is the value or the impact of Antonio Guterres' comments today that we're reaching boiling point and it's all desperate in a crisis
2: well you know i think a lot of people would agree with them I'm, I'm i'm not really you know it, it, there's a, a risk of um sounding too bleak and making people feel too much like there's nothing that can be done and and i think at this point that you know we've had choices all the way along that could take us along different paths mm. and even at this point, there are still a lot of choices we can make that can take us along different paths. So, I think even, you know, if you know the 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 information that we're getting at the moment is quite alarming and and, and is quite bleak, um, but at the same time, we still have choices that can give us different outcomes. So,
1: it's so interesting that you say that because I, I I think and, and not to edit, not to um, become your editor, since I have nothing to do with the Kaka other than this this weekly thing, but. The, it's interesting to think about the choices that individuals can make, which are incredibly mm. limited. And you know, I got told off by somebody at the spinoff the other day for for having um, repeated the Grantham Institute's nine things to do, but two of them were about political activism and getting mm. getting angry about some of these things. And I suspect mm. that, as banal as they seem, that that political awareness and political action and saying we need action is actually the way to go, because I, I, you've probably seen in the UK this week, um, Rishi Sunak is talking about turning down the commitment on some of the um, some of the net zero obligations because it's politically unacceptable or politically difficult.
2: That's right. I think there is a social tipping point we can get to, and the sooner we get towards that social tipping point it, that you know leads people to be more interested in more climate action, the better it will be.
0: And, and uh, things do change. Um, for example, this week, um, James Shaw reversed effectively, mm. well, the government reversed its stance from before Christmas mm. to tighten up the ETS, and we saw an immediate jump in the carbon price. So um, the government you know, was focused on bread and butter issues in December and January and got challenged in court by um, lawyers for climate action. They did a great job of presenting the case that, the government's uh, decision to ignore the climate commission was uh, in breach of the law, and uh, the government said, yeah, okay, um we'll have another look at it." So those changes happened, the price changed, and suddenly, remember for every ten dollars increase in the carbon price, we see an increase in the the costs of uh, transport of around about a dollar fifty, a dollar sixty for an average household and just under $1 a dollar for a lower income household. Mm. So um things are ch- things can be done and things are changing. Um I'm I'm quite keen uh, over the next few months before the election to start looking at some of the solutions if you like, some of the actions that governments could take with different mm. types of policies and doing it in a in a way which talks about much faster action that is Um, uh, somewhere close to politically acceptable. So that's a a challenge for us to try to do that because I think if you can Especially in
1: your solutions journalism approach, Bernard, of which Catherine is a living example.
0: Exactly. We're doing some stuff to get information out there and look at some of the policy choices that maybe sometimes don't uh, bubble to the surface in other ways. So Catherine, thank you very much. Lovely to have you and great to see your first story um, out there and and it went out to everyone um, immediately. That's something we're proud
1: of. Very exciting. Thanks, Chris. I'm really good to see you. You too. Talk soon. Robert, it's great to see you. Hey. Robert, you handsome devil, you've been talking to the bloody Otago Daily Times, I see.
3: <laughs> well, yes, they are the local paper.
1: Jesus. Oh, we, we thought we <laughs> had you exclusively. Do they, do they send you bottles of gin from time to time? I bet they don't. No, they're not as generous as you, Peter and, and Bernard. No. Yeah, well, we got I think you probably. I think with any luck, you finished that one, so I must send you another one. I've, I told Bernard to send you one, but I'd be surprised. I'll bring one back through duty free. That, that's Yeah, good. It.
0: Um, Robert, it's been a, um, a heck of a week for visits from yeah. very interesting and influential and connected people to this country.
1: The two partners that came, the Secretary of State, that's pretty high profile for New Zealand. He was coming to see Megan Rapino, not Nanaya Mahuta, but yeah. <laughs> Although I totally endorse him seeing Nanaya Mahuta as well. Yeah.
0: Um, what did you think of those two visits and the outcomes from those visits, at least?
3: Pretty successful, I think, so far. And um, there'll be some people in New Zealand disappointed because I think Nanaya Mahuta again emphasized caution in relation to Pillar 2 of AUKUS, this enhanced mm-hmm. security arrangement, I think uh, the the Albanese visit seems to have gone well. Uh, it, it seems that he's been visiting a lot of people in Wellington. But, I, you know, it, it was interesting because the New Zealand government said that the relationship between Australia and New Zealand uh, was at an all-time high, mm. and the Australians haven't done anything to dispel that. And as we've discussed before, the strong impression I got, and it's clearly a very good relationship between Nanaia Mahuta... And Antony Blinken, I was struck by the fact that in the press conference that they held, uh, that he referred to at one point by her first name, which was, mm. uh, and also all the body language and the, the dis, you know, the way they presented themselves uh, seems to me that they get on very well. And uh, Antony Blinken said in his address, uh, in, in his remarks to the media, that. He had been really astonished uh, and favourably pleased by his visit, first visit to New Zealand. So, hmm. I think he went out of his way to, you know, uh, be extremely positive about the visit. Uh, he said the door was very open, as he put it, for New Zealand to walk through if he wants to go to pillar two. But I got I got the feeling that the Amer- for the Americans it's not a game changer. And you know, yeah. there's been a lot of focus on AUKUS, but one thing I've picked up. There are other issues which strongly bind the United States and New Zealand at the moment, which are not getting too much air. One is the fact that New Zealand's emerging in America's eyes as an important space actor.
1: Oh yeah, what an interesting idea, Robert. Where did you pick that? Where did you pick that one up from? Because that's really fascinating. Well,
3: last year we hosted at ah. the you know the well-known University of Otago Foreign Policy School, Dr. Maria Pozza, who's one of the leading experts on the international law in space. Uh, Maria hosted an excellent two-day conference on this whole question of New Zealand's emergencies and space actor, and uh, it's happening rapidly. Robert, what do you? What did you...
1: Uh, there, was a, there was a bit of a... I mean, it's one of those things that happens in Wellington, happens with journalists. There was an attempt with Albanese being here, and of course I've been doing that thing about how do you pronounce Albanese, but mm. uh, I found a, a very good video of him saying it's albinese as in <laughs> as in spaghetti bolognese <laughs> but he said i'm just quite happy with albo thank you yeah um but uh, there was a there was an attempt to kind of draw a line between uh what the australians said and what um blinken said about us entering the tier 2 that essentially the australians indicated there was no no prospect of us entering tier 2 we didn't need you and blinken just saying Actually, it's academic. But is there a division there? I'm not sure, to be
3: quite frankly, between the Australians and the Americans. I think what I do know is that uh, quite clearly, two things. Firstly, that the Americans said publicly they regard New Zealand as a trusted partner in matters of international security. Mm -hmm. And so I think from the American point of view, the connection with New Zealand has real value whether we are in AUKUS or not. And uh, I think that they uh, Nanaya Mahuta was non committal, uh, but she did point out something that was quite significant. And she pointed out that the countries of the region, she mentioned explicitly the Pacific Island states mm-hmm. and the Treaty of Rarotonga, which is, she was mm-hmm. saying, quite frankly, that the countries of the Pacific Island States region have committed themselves to non-nuclear security. New Zealand is committed to that, and therefore, New Zealand will not com- compromise. She could have mentioned also that the countries of ASEAN are committed to non-nuclear security. Mm. So there's a lot of actors there that New Zealand does not want to disappoint by seeming to be taking a backward mm. step on not uh, non-nuclear security. So I mm. think the message, the message was actually... This is our global brand. We need to be very careful here. We have yet to be convinced that the advantages or the payoffs from being part of Pillar Two will outweigh the possible blurring of New Zealand's well-known. And remember, New Zealand was a a major driving force for the Treaty and the prohibition of mm. nuclear weapons, which mm. more than fifty countries. So there's a lot at stake for New Zealand, and uh, I I get the distinct feeling. That we're being diplomatic, but uh, that New Zealand's not going to, this side of an election, uh, be pushing pillar two.
1: Yeah, interesting. I, I was really struck, uh, or not really struck, but you know, we had a couple of interesting developments in the Pacific this week, including President Macron uh, yeah. turning up in the uh, New Caledonia. Um, our friend uh, Patrick Smelly, of course, flew up there on on mm-hmm. holiday, but of course, I'm sure he knew that uh, Macron was coming. Macron, you know, talked about imperialist forces in the Pacific, which is kind of ironic when you're sitting in a um, <laughs> French, in a, literally a French colony, uh, yeah. accusing others of being imperialist. But then you also had the <laughs> visit to Beijing and then returning of the um, Sogovari, the um, yeah. uh, Solomon's uh, Prime Minister. There's there's quite a lot of dynamism in there at the moment. You got the French in mm-hmm. there saying, essentially saying. We're going to be part. Of, we're going to talk about imperialism, but we actually just mean that to be we. We have to have a voice here, as well as um, the mm. United States and uh, China. And then you've got Sogavare being having quite a sort of splittist, dare I say, approach to the rest of the Pacific.
3: Yeah, but I think uh, the one thing that I found very encouraging, and this let's put Aukus to one side, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States seem to be on the same page. Anthony Blinken referred to this as converging perceptions of China. Um, When I say they're on the same page, I think New Zealand has pushed for a long time, and uh, Anthony Albanese agrees, with first with Jacinda Ardern and now Chris Hipkins, on this, that you mustn't approach the Pacific Island states purely in terms of great power rivalry and try to recruit them to one side or the other. They're saying, what is the national security problem for the Pacific Island states? It's it's climate change. Mm. That is the number one threat that all countries face in that region. Two of them, the threat threat could be terminal if something is not done in the next two decades. Mm. So I think the pitch is now that the three Western countries, well, Western orientated countries, basically try to address the security problems that the Pacific Island states articulate. Mm. If they do that, then you won't eliminate China from the region. But China as a political threat would be diminished. In other words, China's too big to contain. They're going to be in the Pacific. How do you deal with that? You don't sort of go into the politics of pretense and say, "Oh, we're going to contain them and prevent them from being influential."
1: Yeah, Robert. There's a there's a chap who um, what's his handle? Bernard Thomas Cranmore. C- Thomas Cranmer. Yep. Cranmer, who uh, accosted me today on Twitter because uh, about Nanaya Mahuta. Because I still think, as we've talked a couple of you know a couple of times on this, that she and Jacinda are doing before her, but I mean, obviously her as Prime Minister, Jacinda as Prime Minister, but have been very subtle and clever in the way they've managed this delicate balance with China.
0: Yeah, and I think the yeah. reaction to the meetings uh, in the last couple of uh, weeks. From serious people has been really uh, positive. Um, and, and I, I think too, from a you know global contest point of view, this has been a bad week for China. And you've got to remember the biggest event in um, global geopolitics this week, you could argue, is the replacement, which was a bit of a shock uh, <laughs> of the missing an action foreign minister yeah. and not just with um, anyone, but the guy who was there before. <laughs> <laughs> like mm. bringing back the old guy,
1: so we've got, we've got consistency. Yeah,
3: because we don't know the reasons yet. I know we've mm. explored this once, but one
1: thing that has occurred to me thinking about we can, this, we can always explore things about that involve shagging, shagging um, no, television can't. interviewers mm. um, <laughs> nope, and nope. having babies with them. We can explore them quite happily, thank you.
3: Well, we won't go down that route, but um, it occurred to me that this is a major political setback for Xi Jinping because. Yeah. Wang Yi, who's emerged once again as foreign minister, is widely respected, actually, in the United States. The United States, in its own coded way, has been very supportive of his appointment, mm. saying that he was a skilled diplomat and someone they knew. But I think it's a defeat for... I th- There are signs here there's a political power struggle going on, I believe. Can't prove it because it's a closed political system. Um, but there are signs that she has got some pretty powerful enemies in the Central Committee of the mm. ruling Communist Party. And his protégé, uh, Qin Gang, has disappeared from view for a month and now has been replaced by someone, uh, Wang Yi, who is a, a career diplomat who speaks Japanese. I think he's been brought in partly to maybe cut Xi down to size a bit Uh, but also to restore some capability in the foreign affairs area at a vital time for China, at a time when China's become more dependent on the West, not less, and uh, in which there's been deep concerns within the Central Committee of the ruling Communist Party about Xi's uh, almost, well, I wouldn't say unreserved because it has been measured, but quite clear political identification with Putin's security concerns in the U.S. Ukraine. And I think, you know, there must have been voices behind closed doors saying, Putin's actually undermining our foreign policy. Hmm. He's tearing up the principles of territorial integrity and sovereignty, which underpins our claim to Taiwan and Hong Kong. So you can imagine the sort of debates going on. I, I wouldn't be surprised, can't prove it, whether this reshuffling of the pack at the foreign ministry level is a bit of a political setback for the paramount leader in China. Yeah, but can we get back to the shagging?
0: No, no, <laughs> let's stay away from the shagging and go straight to the heart of the matter, which I'm is. I'm sorry, I'm the- too naughty
1: sometimes.
0: <laughs> He'd only been there for seven months, and this was the guy that Xi parachuted in. So, this is a bad look for Xi, and it also uh, reflects some of the pressure that's on in China. Remember this, you know, argy bargy between China and the United States. Jesus, argy
1: bargy, Bernard. You can yeah, take yeah. the boy out of mutter mutter,
0: but no, you can't. Yeah, no. argy bargy between China and the United States has been sort of at a at a uh, a very um, elevated level and doesn't seem to have affected trade much at all until now, because when you look at the export and import figures things are really drying up for uh, China. They're finding it more difficult to both get mm. the imports they need, the chips they need to build uh, the manufacturing they need. Um, there is significant action now from um, both American and European companies to uh, re-onshore a lot of their manufacturing activities, to friendshore, to move things away from China, even if uh, it's not back onshore. And... Uh, Uh, this is starting to have an impact on their economy. The export engine Mm. is slowing down and they've got plenty of challenges inside their domestic um, construction sector. They can't just push the button to build another gazillion apartments anymore. And um, consumers, consumers now can see that there is tension between the superpowers. It's not a good
1: it's not a good look to be, you know. Oh, I don't know, Bernard. Picking... I'm just, I think you're talking bollocks on that one. I'm for, Sorry. I was really struck this week by the um, chief executive of Stellantis, which is what we used to call Fiat, mm-hmm. and which owns Fiat, Peugeot, Citroen, and Jeep and Chrysler, mm. said that um, you know they want to be they want to be all electric by 2030. I think it was no more no more petrol cars. But Chinese cars are invading. Invading Europe and they're twenty percent cheaper. I mean, I I don't want to come over all Kissingerus on this, but you know we've got to remember there's one point four billion people there, sophisticated economy now. You know we need to get real and actually get on with these people.
3: Well, I think Berner's really got a point. Yes, you're quite right, Peter. I'm sure Western companies are nervous about Chinese cars being unleashed on the car market. I'm sure they have some justification, I guess. But um, I think the other thing is if you look at the internal situation in China, the whole legitimacy of the party rests on delivering good growth every year. And Xi is presiding over, if you like, a declining economy, which means those with political ambitions believe he's vulnerable. And Mm. I think this removal of the foreign minister is linked to the diminishing Chinese economic performance. And uh, I I think one or two voices are saying to Xi, you're... Um you know, wolf warrior diplomacy is costing us economically. We better mm. rein this in. And I think he may, you know, he may have had to accept this demotion of his protege with through gritted teeth.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting you say that, Robert. I, I was I was listening this week and, and I do recommend it, although I don't recommend other podcasts usually on this podcast, but the uh the Economist's um drum tower podcast uh, with their Chinese correspondence is excellent and yeah. there were you know one one number that i was really struck by was that the population of the of the number of chinese uh, communist party members in china is the same as the population of germany which is about 80 million mm. so that question of legitimacy is always on on a kind of knife edge it's so interesting and yeah. and
0: and from the point of view of um consumers Uh, what's actually happening in China at the moment is a consumer spending strike. So consumers are actually, they've got plenty of money in the bank, they're just not spending it. And the domestic economy, which has always been the hope that China would switch from being an exporting and construction economy to a consumer economy, that switch is not happening. And to make it happen, you need consumers to be confident enough about their futures to spend money, and they're not. You know, in a a normal democracy – Uh, you look at consumer confidence, you get a sense of how people are feeling about the world. Now, in China, it's not a normal democracy, but you still have consumer confidence. And that tells you that the people of China are
1: not thrilled with what's going on at the moment.
0: Hey, Robert, thank you very much for being on you're the show, welcome. it's lovely to see you.
1: Thank you. Robert, I'm really appalled that you're talking to any other media outlet, though, because <laughs> this, is, this is the way you to get, you'd get your voice out.
0: We're, we're open, we're free, we're public. It's, it's, and no one it's ever a... interrupts you here either. <laughs> 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 That's part
3: of the fun, isn't it, really? Thank you so much. No, you're very welcome.
0: And we're very lucky to have Josie Pagani uh, back with us. We are very lucky to have Josie We haven't lucky. seen her for ages. Yeah. And it's wonderful to see you after um, a great column today, by the way, in The Post, looking at you know some of the problems politically for the government and making a very good call about um, uh, various ways to make a difference. And one of them is to fund proper dental care in this country, because now... Uh, whether you've got teeth at all is in a way a- <laughs> <laughs> as you know bernard yeah, yeah yeah no no i'm i'm um uh, is is a sign of class frankly it
4: is yeah i mean it's one of the most obvious ones in new zealand actually cuz i mean there 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 are few democracies like ours in the oecd that, that do not have some kind of publicly funded dental care i mean it's i, I grew up in the uk was born here grew up in the uk um, and had free dental care, free eye examinations, um, free GP visits. You know, so uh, when I came back to New Zealand in my twenties, it was like, what, what the hell? You know, like <laughs> you're paying to go to the doctor, you're paying to, uh, and then you know, you go and get your teeth checked after the age of eighteen. Uh, I mean, even for people on a relatively good income, six thousand dollars. Average for a for a crown or you know four hundred bucks for a filling. I mean, it's extraordinary. So yeah, it's become a signifier of poverty. Um, and I, I remember working for Jim Anderton on this years ago. Um, Who? With
1: John. Who? Jim? Who did you just mention then? Jim Anderton. You are not old enough to work for Jim Anderton. That's ridiculous. I, I, yeah,
4: absolutely. You in must government. have been a child. We were. We were in. Um, one of the things that we came into government with was a policy for free. Or subsidized free and subsidized uh, dental care, um, paid parental leave, uh, Kiwi Bank. Um,
1: so, Josie, well, I didn't realise he was going to bring up toothy pigs, toothy, and pigs. you know, rabbit stamps and hippopotamus stamps on the back of. So, no, no, it's a it's a good column. Everyone should read it. And I may actually tell you a, a a really outrageous story, which people will love, and it might get me into you know trouble with Kim Hill or something, but. Josie, what happened to um, school dental nurses then?
4: The murder house. Um, Labor, uh, the Helen Clark government, I think it was Nick, when Nick King was uh, Minister of Health, funded um, and sub- funded basically dental checkups for school kids. So up to the age of 18, so 17, um, everything's free. So you either do it at the school, uh, like you did in the old days, or um, you go to the local dentist and it's free. Then it stops, right? So yeah. I've got friends same age as me, you know, uh middle aged who've got a full mouth of dentures. And that is a, a, a an absolute um black and white sign of of income. Mm. Because if you can't afford to go to the dentist, your only option after that after that age, Peter, when you leave school, your yeah. only option is to turn up at the emergency room at the hospital, start doing it at five AM and get out.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, no, but so just I just don't understand. So, all right, I don't fully. I mean, I know that was a socialist time, and it was all you know, Michael Joseph Savage and Christ knows what. But it wasn't. I wasn't that old. Um, it, you know, there was an idea that if we got and we, and we it's why we did fluoridation. That if mm. we got people a reasonable foundation, like uh, your thing about the UK, I think is a little bit. Um, out of date now, because the NHS dentist thing has completely collapsed and is That's a disaster right. mm. but um, that 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 thing about preventive medicine and getting the, getting kids' toothy pigs sorted out until they 're teenagers is a brilliant idea
4: absolutely, but also having a health So prevention, we don't do enough in prevention generally across health, right? And actually one of the great things about new technology coming out is that we're going to get much better at the preventative end of health than the treatment end. But having said that, you're still going to end up with uh, um, when you've in a society like New Zealand where there are, there is roughly 50 percent of the population can't afford to go to the dentist they're going to end up having to needing treatment and they're going to need it in the hospital um, so you know if if You've got to look at the long-term expense of that for a start, but also you've got to—you can't have a health system that is that is responding to bad health outcomes by saying, "Well, I'm going to judge your lifestyle." Mm. So imagine if we said—and you know, I wrote about this in the column—you know, imagine if we said um, you ate way too much pasta and uh, you know chocolates and chippies, and now you've got a heart attack in your fifties. Look after well, yourself. Don't
1: we do that? Isn't this whole discussion about obesity exactly that as well?
4: Oh, absolutely. But that's the preventative end. But once somebody ends up in hospital, we don't sit there going, mm-hmm. you know, folding our arms and going, you fat git, you should never have eaten pasta um, or chocolate or chip, chippies. We treat the heart attack. So I think, you know, if you're going to say that, that you, that, you know, we shouldn't be treating people or we shouldn't be funding people to have better teeth because they should just not eat sweets and sugary drinks. Absolutely. But, we've, but it's a terrible approach to a health system to say, we'll only fund you if you've lived a decent life and we'll judge your lifestyle.
0: The context of this, of course, is that uh, the government this week appears to be getting ready to uh, propose um, taking GST off uh, food Possibly fresh food. Uh, And um, the question is, you know, how does the government spend its money to try to get re elected? And uh, there's a good question about, you know, if you could spend quite a bit of money taking GST off food, which you could use in other ways, for example, reforming working for families, or uh, as you say, um, paying for dental care for everyone, which is a we're at that point in the political cycle now where the politicians are looking to spend some money. And what we're trying to do is say, hey, there's various choices, and here's maybe the best way you can get the most um uh, benefit for that for the people who need it the most, uh, which i which I think is good. Um Josie, what what did you think of this dramas around not just uh, GST on food, which came out in a weird way? Some people are saying it was leaked by labour to national so that um uh, national could bring it up and maybe Labour could see yeah. how it goes before this conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um or um the I suspect cock up usually rather than conspiracy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um uh and then of course we had Māori with a full on, you know, across the board, no 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 quarter asked bunch of wealth taxes, which you know was Sort of fun to watch, actually. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. what what did you think of 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 the of the whole you know tax politics this week?
4: Oh golly! It, so there's several things there. One is. Yeah, I think Labour knows. And this was kind of the background to my column today that I think Labour realises they need a big idea, right? So they're thinking, well, let's, you know, let's go back on, on you know, the, the diary items from the last sort of few elections. Oh, GST off fruit and veg. Now, I mean, I happen to think, I know there are lots of reasons to look at why that might not be the best policy, but I reckon it's a policy worth looking at. Other countries have done it. They've managed to, they've managed to define the difference between a tin of pears and a pear you know which is pretty obvious but they haven't
1: managed to define the difference between a jaffa cake and a cake in england
4: Well, but you don't I mean, you're doing fruit and veg uh I, we, a jaffa cake and a cake is that is relevant you know i mean so and we don't have jaffas anything, anymore
1: anyway in new zealand but yeah carry on
4: that, i mean there are issues around how much of the of the gst saving gets passed on to consumers and all of these issues but having said all of that i think Bernard, the biggest problem with it is, I mean, you and I have talked about wealth taxes and capital gains taxes, and we're we're an advocate for for reforming our incredibly broken tax system, which, I mean, here's some figures, Um, if I can remember them rightly, but basically our tax revenue, about 45% of it, comes from taxes on wages, and 31% from GST. And then mm-hmm. it's only about 16% comes from corporate profits, mm-hmm. um, and then about 1% from excise on booze and, you mm-hmm. know, cigarettes and fags and whatever. So, you know, we're huge so in what, Do we charge
1: more excise on those things than just not just um, GST? Oh, yeah. I thought <laughs> we were living in a, in a flat tax paradise. <laughs> no, no. Yeah,
4: you need a mortgage to buy a packet of cigarettes these days.
1: Oh, I do understand that. Yeah, yeah. But, jo- Josie, may I just ask you about this? Because it's it's something Bernard and I talk about, and I think, you know, I, I wish you'd been on a couple of weeks ago because I, I think you need to be on every week, especially oh. in the run-up to the election. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Bernard wrote a really brilliant piece about what I considered to be, as a, as a non-political person but as an observer, the cop-out by Chris Hipkins on mm-hmm. what seemed a very reasonable and intelligent set of capital gains tax yeah. things which i can't imagine politically would not have brought him huge amounts of uh, potential votes from people under 40
4: that's right and and, and there was a poll out uh, just before that he ruled it out where mm. uh, basically the majority of new zealanders are going some kind of wealth tax and do it really people don't really understand what it is or but they're kind of going what they're getting is not an envy thing they're kind of going yeah I think I'm paying too much and I think there needs to be the need the levers need to be cha- you know pulled so that others are paying their fair share it's not a kind of envy the rich thing but I think what I was going to say about the GST thing although I you know I, I'm kind of lukewarm about it but I do support it as a concept and worth looking at but the problem they've got I think is that they're not doing a tax switch You know, so that's what John Key did when, uh, you know, lowered lowered income, increased GST. So there was a tax switch. So people could see, okay, what you're doing is you're actually redistributing towards working people Mm -hmm. away from, you know, consumption. Um, uh, sorry it, towards consumption away from working people so what you the problem here is that there's no tax switch so how are they going to pay for mm. a cut in gst and of
1: course we don't know it's yet the policy but but no we but, don't but
4: that's that's the problem with any policy being announced between now and the election you've got yeah. to say how you're going to pay it and the wealth tax was a tax switch free mm. tax um uh threshold up to ten thousand, i think it was um and then you know a, a relatively minor tax on mm. anything above five million dollars. So mm. you can see how you pay for it.
1: Yeah, it did. It did look very. But Josie, just on this on the GST thing, am I am I just naive and having not lived in New Zealand? Weren't we gifted something really amazing by Roger Douglas with the absolutism of the way GST was introduced all those years ago? You know that it was well, that it was it was no, nothing to argue about. It was across everything. And I mean, it's I'll
4: Saint Bernard answer that. Bernard.
1: <laughs> well, you're absolutely right, Peter, that it was a clean,
0: pure system. And not just for GST, but also for income tax. You know, we got a load of, rid of all sorts of exemptions for that. And it would have been absolutely brilliant if we'd also had a broad-based low-rate tax on capital gains Correct. or yeah. wealth. And this is the, the sort of frustration. And this is where I get at the purists, right? The purists, I get it, you know. My background is in economics. I'm all about um, you know nice, clean rules and, and no exceptions and all of that, which is fine. But they didn't take the last step. It's like they introduced the suite of perfect policies, except the one policy they should have introduced, which would have made it completely which perfect. Which
1: actually Grant Robertson was trying to address in that thing you did exactly. the other day. And that's exactly. where it's so interesting. That other chat resigned. David Parker, yeah. You know that that seems to be a much more significant resignation, Jos- mm. Josie. What do you think about that that resignation?
4: Yeah, I mean, your background's economics, Bernard. My background, I did a degree in political theatre, so I, I'm not, <laughs> that, to be honest, but have made what, what up What would for it. be
1: the Brechtian answer to this? Yeah,
4: <laughs> it would be dialectic. That's all I can tell you. But what, but what I would say is that I, you know, Adam Smith, the great architect of um, you know the kind of pure classic liberal ta- liberalist tax system you know, way back in 1776 his first principle of how you have a good tax system is fairness mm. and and you know i looked at that labor party policy which was basically saying yeah we need to address the balance here shift some of the um some of the tax burden over here and reduce it over here it would have passed adam smiths fairness tax mm. t- and his other principles are, um, you know, it has to be um, efficient. So it has to be, like you said, with GST, it has to be efficient, easy to understand. Sorry, Josie,
1: did you mean did you mean the the proposed Grant Robertson thing when you yeah. when you said it would it looked fair? Did you yeah yeah yeah.
4: yeah. The labour yep. tax, yeah. Whereas the um, Te Paati wealth tax system, I mean, you know, <laughs> Bernard and I have been supporters of of a tax on capital for many, many years and talked about it all the time. Uh, the Te, te one is like, a—I think it's a 48% tax on anyone earning over $300,000. It's like even I'm not going to support that one. <laughs> so there are limits.
0: And And even better, if you have a... A, a beach house or a batch or something, which you're not living in for more than six months of a year. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Mm. No, party, Māori would tax you 33% of the market value of the house every year.
4: Do you know <laughs> what it reminds me of, guys? It, when I was in the UK and at the university we, during the miners' strike, and we actually passed um, a resolution during at the Student Union, Labour Party Student Union annual conference to turn um I think it was uh, it was Kettleworth Castle and Warwick Castle into a, a retirement home for striking miners. <laughs> slightly <laughs> reminds me the Tapati Mami policy slightly reminds me yeah. of that. Mm.
1: But but so so Josie, haven't we just missed I mean, as Bernard is one of the few journalists to have pointed out, haven't we just missed hasn't Chris Hipkins just missed an historic opportunity to choose a really logical set of policies? That actually, because you know, Bernard wants to talk about the Kerry Allen thing and the various, you know, collapses of ministers and wheels coming off, which is slightly an ironic phrase to use with Kerry. But that was a real opportunity, completely missed, wasn't it? To 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 bring in a really intelligent CGT.
4: There's an idea that being in the centre is somehow. Bland and beige, you know, fifty shades of beige. It's kind of, and it's, and it's, it's not right. I mean, look at Keir Starmer in the UK, who, as a person, you know, he could run at a pigeon and it wouldn't move. He's quite <laughs> bland, you know, He's, but he has managed. He might
1: process Don't forget, he was the head of public prosecutions. So, I, I, yeah. I think that pigeon might be in trouble. Yeah.
4: So he so he he has come up with some really tough he's taken his own party on, unlike Chris Hipkins, who hasn't yet been able to jettison the stupid projects that are costing 50 billion bucks to combine lake onslow light rail in auckland the kind of things that you just go get rid of that and have some big exciting transformational policy that some people will disagree with but go out and be bold and courageous don't be a Ming vase politician where you you know you behave as if you're carrying this priceless vase across a polished floor and desperately- oh, could
1: you could you just do that again because the, the Ming. I, I've heard Alistair Campbell and uh, talk about the, the the Ming. Could you could you explain the Ming Vaz strategy?
4: So it's actually Roy Jenkins, UK um, former Labour, then went into SDP, um, but Roy Jenkins uh, first used it. and He d- used it to describe Tony Blair in '97, and he said that Tony Blair was being so careful not to lose the election that he was like a uh, like he was carrying a priceless Ming vase across a dance a polished floor. Um, so it was a it's a really good way of talking about the the kind of professional politician. Who who is not prepared to risk something and go out and say right? You know, I mean, the job of politics, as you just said earlier, is choices and persuasion. Persuasion. So, um, yeah. So he talked about that, and I've always thought, what's the opposite of that? And I think it's that we're looking for the kind of politician who, who will carry a, a, a tray of drinks across a crowded dance floor, and you know, and go to hell with it. Let's have a good time. So we, yeah. I mean, I think that's why the smaller part. that's
1: Jim Bolger, isn't it?
4: Jim Bulger. I'm very mm. fond of Jim, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't see him at a at a dance party carrying a tray of glasses. Oh, I'd
1: see him in. A, I'd see him in one of those Woolshed parties. But what do you mm. reckon, Bernard? The yeah. Ming Vase strategy. I, I, I'm not sure that that Chris Hipkins thinks he's carrying a Ming Vase. I, I feel he's just broken it with that that uh, decision on tax. Uh, I, th- I
0: think it is a symptom of the low target strategy. I mean, there's low target Ming Vase, same sort of um, issue yeah. here. And what I think was interesting this week, um, the tragedy of uh, Kerry Allen's demise obviously caught everyone's attention and again, you know, highlight, uh, played into this opposition line about, you know, a coalition of chaos. But the really interesting thing this week, I think, in a purely political sense was David Parker, as you suggested, Peter, Mm. David Parker coming out and saying quite quite openly, you know, um, I gave it a good crack. You ignored my perfectly fine policy, bugger You, you can have it back, mate. But actually, it was actually maybe that's adult. No, no, he's being very clear about it. You know, I have a view. I put it forward, and you you said no, so that's fine. I, you can Good. have it.
1: What do you think, Josie? Because that seemed. I, I mean, people made a uh, Lux, uh, Christopher Luxon made a bit of a fuss of it, but that well, actually seemed to be a really logical way to think of it.
4: So that's the opposite of the Mingvaz politician, right? So mm. he and I think the fetish that we have in our politics, left and right, of unity—that you've that you've got to have a caucus that 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 makes the kind of smile that you can only make through sucking air through your teeth. You know, the kind of <laughs> fake, fake smile that the caucus members come out of, it, behind, standing behind the new leader. You know, we're all, yeah. we're a team player. We're team players, and I think if you look at the the, the, the culture in the UK where you can have former Prime Minister like Theresa May stand up and tear Boris Johnson to pieces as a backbench MP, uh, you know, over Brexit and his, you know, his complete, and, and over the party gate, actually, over party gate in particular, where she just torn mm. to pieces. And what that did actually was save the Tory party from complete oblivion because people thought, well, there are people in there who still represent mm. these ideas. And that's great. A contest of ideas, different factions within a party, is how politics should work. Um, and this idea that we've all got to be kind of, you know, there's a problem if we don't all agree. I mean, mm. there's a bunch of backbenches. Um, in Labor and National, but particularly in Labor, because they had such a great election in 2020, who are about to lose their jobs? Yeah. Only their friends and family even know they're there. After three years, mm. they just sat there asking Patsy questions. So, what the hell was the point of that? Josie, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we,
1: you, you haven't been on for a, for a few weeks, but we we had a session maybe three weeks ago, now two weeks ago, about solutions journalism. And we had a friend of mine on from the st- from Australia, which I, you know, is like misogynist. You know, it's, it's it's we can't have too many people on from Australia. But <laughs> um, you know, the point was that the Kaka or Bernard in this show, we're trying to talk about solutions. How much has the media contributed to that um, situation that you described of the of the necessity of loyalty and the the sort mm. of you know feeling that oh there's division in the party we're gonna it's gonna be split. As opposed to these are really interesting issues in this debate.
4: I, I think it, it starts from a political culture, but then where does the political culture come from? So it's really difficult to to know. But I think it's that um, there's, if you look at the makeup of Parliament, you look at the makeup of people who work in the media. It is, um, but it didn't used to be so monocultural in terms of class, right? So we're much better at diversity around ethnicity around. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not very good at it about um, diversity of, of life experience, if you like. So I don't think, you know, Parliament in the 70s used to have, I think it was about 70% came directly from a professional managerial job into Parliament. Now it's 100% come from a professional managerial job straight into Parliament. So even if they've got a working class background... Mm-hmm. Um, they're coming straight from a middle class job, and it's the same in media. I think where you've got a, we've we've got a very um, uh, kind of sorry.
1: Med- media is a work- working class job now, by the way, but it's carry on. not.
4: I mean, that's exactly uh, completely wrong. <laughs> working I class
1: mean, pay, yeah,
4: it's working class pay. So it means that people. Yeah, uh, I, I think I probably earn about 500 bucks a week at the moment, right? And, and and I'm doing heaps of things. I can only afford to do it for a while like this because, you know, my husband's working and he's got a full-time job. So I think what we've got is a media where um, it's not to do with pay so much as, you know, who can actually afford to even have a job in the media now? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you, you've you got people coming through from, uh, you know, you're re- recruiting people out of journalism school and so on, and it's just it's very monocultural in terms of life experience
1: yeah it's so interesting that isn't it it's that we can can we do an entire show on that
0: please yeah sir? I mean the, the the focus on the horse race the focus on the 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 scandal the gotcha um, that is because when you can't have debates about real issues because the politicians are scared of having debates about real issues as a journalist what you're got to do is focus on the conflict and the um, the heat the the heat spots, and in a world where you can't talk about issues, all you can talk about is who's going to win and who's making mistakes, and so that's all you focus on.
1: And uh, Bernard, is, is this the appropriate time then to talk about Currie-Allen? Because um, I, I, I mean, I know that's slightly provocative, but mm. while we've got Josie there, I mean, she's just so intelligent and thoughtful about this. Is this the right time?
0: Yeah. I mean, what, 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 what did you think of... Um, what happened this week with Kerry Ellen?
4: I said this in my column, and I'm looking at it sort of from a party perspective for Labor. I mean, the week that, I mean, it's just, it, it's, I've never seen anything like it. The week where they're rolling out these sort of rolling announcements on law and order for the whole week, it's their law and order week, mm. you know, ends with a tragic shooting of a guy who clearly shouldn't have been on Home D, and then, shockingly, the, the Minister of Justice gets arrested. Mm. And, and I, I, can't think, I can't think of how you could make that worse for the Labor Party. I mean, with Kiri, you know, obviously you, you, you look, as you said, Bernard, you look at her and you go, um, this is awful and tragic for her, um, and you just you, you just want her to get better and just get out of politics for a while. I mean, that's the healthy thing to do. Um, you know, it, but it, it, it looks so bad for Labor. It look, what it does is it looks like there's such a shallow pool of talent there I mean, they've actually brought up Barbara Edmonds, who is one of the the more talented people Mm. who should have been promoted a long time ago, in my view. Mm. Um, But it's hard to see what they've got, what they're fishing in this pool of talent that's extremely shallow. And their entire front bench has just sort of spectacularly Mm. exploded in different Mm. ways. So I'm not sure how they change that perception now.
0: Do you think this was the week that Labor lost the election?
4: I think it probably was, Bernard, don't you think? Uh, It feels really hard to come back from. I do think there are ways back. Miracles have happened, but but you have to, you know, one of the things that Tony Blair got so right was an analysis of how you win. And the first thing he says is when you lose or when you're losing – have an honest discussion with yourselves about why you're losing. And it's usually not because your values are unpopular, but your policies are or if there's a perception that you're incompetent or whatever. It's usually a policy problem. So that's why in the column today I was trying to say come up with something that's going to excite us, that's going to go, wow, that's a, that would be a game changer. You know, free dental care in New Zealand would be spent. Mm. That would be Michael Joseph Savage, you know, mm. level change.
0: And they've got 82 days to go. So we'll see how it goes. Josie, it's wonderful to have you on. So good. Thank you so much.
4: Thanks.
0: guys. And You've got a skateboarding dog, Peter?
1: Well, I don't have a real skateboarding dog, and I think we have discussed this before, but you know, we were supposed to talk about Israel oh, sorry, and yeah. the extraordinary um, what's going on at the moment with the potential destruction of the Israeli democracy that we've all known since 1947. And I was really struck to remember that uh, thing which I think I've brought up before I'm afraid of Obama and Sarkozy being caught on an open mic oh, yeah mm. talking about uh, Netanyahu being you know you have to deal with him I have to deal with him every week he's a <laughs> terrible liar and so one of the things that I said mm. that you you claimed to like Bernard this week was describing Netanyahu as a, a Lazarus a zombie and a Frankenstein yes uh, with justification, I hope, for each one. Mm. Now, I thought this was really interesting today, and I I appreciate it. And I know I've interrupted you from time to time, but I thought there was a really interesting dialogue. Very great to have Josie back. Mm. And I don't know, is this the week that they lost it? Because I was thinking also, Bernard, about Franco Flynn, who you might have been, I imagine you were at Massey when this happened. Mm. Mm. And my recollection, which I think he's dead now, what, what, so it's probably not defamatory, is that he was pissed and fell over outside the parliament, outside Parliament, on the street, mm. street across the road, Bowen, whatever it's called, and claimed it said that he'd been mugged. Mm-hmm. and then it became a joke that he'd been mugged by Jack Daniels, um, Johnny Walker and <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, another one. Mm. It, it's a very interesting problem. You know, I mm. think that was incredibly sad uh, what happened this week and was just an awful sort of personal crisis vented mm. all over. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure it portrays bad judgment of Chris Hipkins, does it?
0: No, um, I, I think it's a tra- tragedy. And uh, you could see in the way that Chris Hipkins dealt with the media on Monday that he was personally shocked. Yes. And, and, um, and to be fair to him, he fronted up, he spoke clearly and authentically about how he felt about it. And I, I, th- I think the opposition's, you know, deciding to jump on it and say, this is, this shows that Chris Hipkins has bad judgment. I uh, I just think that fell flat. Was and a little opportunistic. Yeah. And, um, and all I had to do was just step back, uh, and it would have, um, it, it is such a, such a shock to people. That uh, and the this and because it's the seventh minister or you no, know, the fourth minister in seven months Yeah, or something, but all for
1: different reasons. I mean for mm. in her case it really is surely there, but for the grace of God go we.
0: Mm. Yes. And on that note, I think it's time to end the kaka and look forward to seeing you all again next week. See you next week, Bernard. Peter, thank you very much. No, thank you everybody. Cheers. And that has been the whom for uh, Friday the twenty eighth of July. down Naru. Bye bye.